guys. Welcome back to Crowdlings. My name is Justin. And I'm Odin. We're not joined today by Robbie. It's kind of no. sad, right? We miss her. We miss she's, her. Not, she's not here. She's doing important things. She's off at AAAL representing the University of Alabama, right? In Chicago. In right Chicago. Right. She's like cold right now. It's like yeah. seventy degrees. It's kind of it's kind of cold here. No, it's been it's like fifty this morning. It was uh, it was really chilly. Yeah. I should have worn a jacket. I should have worn a jacket. Uh, lots well, of regrets today. Lots of regrets today. Lots of regrets. <laughs> so we uh, are so excited about this episode, right, Bowden? Right. Today is super special. Why is today super special, Bowden? Today is really special because for the first time we have gone beyond the confines of our University of Alabama, and we have a guest joining us from the Ohio State the- University. Ohio State. And he's actually really... Not an Ohio State University. No. Not any old Ohio State it's University. It's the Ohio State University. Ah, uh, yeah. How long is that joke going to last? How do you think I don't that? know. Probably it's, not for super long. We're probably going to make it a lot more time. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we're going to do our very first interview with somebody who's not at our university, right? So we're mm-hmm. kind of bridging the gap between our university and others, uh, trying to expand our network, get more insights on research and the grad school experience in and of itself, right? Right. So we're going to talk first about some research, then we're going to talk about lessons learned, and hopefully he has like a really cool hashtag. I'm really excited about it. I'm really excited (laughs) about that hashtag. Anyways, you guys stay tuned. We'll be right back. with a really awesome person from, is it the Ohio State or is it just Ohio State? I call it OSU, but OSU, (laughs) the Ohio State, any of the above. We're joined by Mark Hoff today from the Ohio State, a PhD student studying linguistics, correct? Uh, And today we get to learn a little bit. It's our very first guest from somebody that's outside of Alabama. Yay! Yay! And I think it's one of our first, our... First guest is somebody, or one of the first people that's not doing like some type of teaching application. Yeah, most right? of the people that we've had from season one yeah. uh, were SLA related, right. correct? And Mark, right. you don't do necessarily SLA. Nope, I don't. Okay, so Mark, tell us just a little bit about yourself. Uh, let's see. Um, I'm a PhD candidate at the Ohio State University. I'm in the Spanish department, uh, the Department of Spanish and Portuguese, and I'm in the Hispanic Linguistics program. I'm a PhD candidate. Uh, which means I should be finishing any time now. Hopefully, yeah. next day, 2019 is the date, so hopefully that happens. Nice. Uh, I'm currently on fellowship, actually, so I was supposed to be done this year, but then mm-hmm. I got three semesters paid for, and I said, okay, well, you know, I'll stick around. So <laughs> That is bad. perfect. So dissertating right now. Okay. So do you mind giving us just a brief synopsis of what your dissertation is about, your research, what you're interested in? Yeah, so most of my research in the past has been morphosyntactic uh, variation. So mostly Spanish, sometimes Brazilian Portuguese, um, even a little bit of European Portuguese. But the past, I would say, two or three years, I've kind of shifted a little bit from morphosyntax to kind of morphosyntax meets pragmatics, even sometimes semantics. Um, So my dissertation topic is actually about um, mood use. So Spanish has the indicative subjunctive contrast. 
And when you talk about things in the future, like when I get home, I'll call you, things Uh like that, there's a mood contrast that you're supposed to follow that signals this is a future thing that hasn't taken place. Yeah. Uh And you don't know if it's going to take place or not, right? Like it's kind of... (laughs) That's part of the fun is like the future is this open bag where we can't and don't know exactly, you know, what's actually going to happen. But speakers make all these assumptions about what is normal, what's expected. Um, And so what you find is that in Argentina and maybe a tiny bit in other varieties too, but definitely not peninsular Spanish, for example, you find that you can use the indicative in those kinds of contexts and say, when I get home in the indicative, I'll call you. It's actually the same morphology as if you were treating that as a present tense habitual. Okay. So it's basically trying to figure out what are the conditions where speakers use this, how is it perceived by other people in the community, since it's not a standard thing, but it's really, really widespread in Argentina. Okay. And then lately I've started looking and finding that, hey, the same thing happens with different forms, but the exact same kind of contrast happens in Brazilian, Portuguese, and Italian. So trying to see kind of how can I position these three in in terms of each other? Are they really working the same way? Is this almost a cross-romance kind of phenomenon? Further I go into it, the more questions it's opening up, so I think it's something I'll be doing for quite a while. That's awesome. That sounds like a great dissertation topic. (laughs) The dissertation topic that never ends. No. (laughs) So you're kind of investigating what's happening to the subjunctive as far as the mood with the future. And do you think that that's more of like an attrition of the subjunctive? Or is that kind of hard to say? Is it just the evolution and the more like colloquial use of Spanish in everyday life to where it's like, well, I'm not going to use this fancy subjunctive. It's or am I kind of like grasping at straws? What do you think? Well, so there's, there's a lot going on, and I don't think anybody really has... Well, first of all, not a lot of attention has been paid to this particular context of these future-looking um, adverb phrases. So a lot of times, with especially Spanish, when you see research done on the subjunctive, they're looking at um, noun clauses and things like, I want that, you know, it is important that, whatever. So not a whole lot of research has been done on these, these adverbial clauses to begin with. And then on top of that, there's this other question of, we don't want to talk about it in dynamic terms without having diachronic evidence, but there's this kind of bad habit that a lot of linguists have of saying like, oh look, normatively should be subjunctive, instead they're using the indicative, maybe the subjunctive is being lost. It's tempting on one hand to say that, but at the same time, the, the crazy part is, for all of these speakers who are using the indicative, the subjunctive is always a perfectly acceptable option too. It's almost like there's little mini invasions of the indicative into subjunctive territory, but at the same time, the subjunctive is holding its ground. And so I'm really hesitant to talk about it in terms of, of loss or you know a contrast that didn't used to be there, because frankly, we don't know. They could have been doing it for the past hundred years, and this is the first time we're paying attention. Oh, wow. um, yeah, so I don't have I don't have a whole lot to say about that yet. What I can tell you is that older speakers do it too. So oh, okay. it's definitely not brand new, and it doesn't seem to be very socially marked. It kind of flies under people's radar for the most part. So the status of it is still something that you know somebody else after me will have to figure out. <laughs> Um, no, future you, future Mark, uh, tenure oh, track Mark, right? We'll see, tenure track Mark, maybe. Tenure- <laughs> so, Mark, how did you arrive at this topic, or what was your moment where you're like, "This is what I'm doing"? Well, so I've always been kind of hooked on Argentine Spanish, um, so much so that my advisor Scott Schwenter, he at one point put me on embargo and said, "No more Argentine Spanish for the oh, next." Oh man! Wow. <laughs> However, I never really did. I never really did follow that rule. I kind of just <laughs> like. Oh, well, I'll do a cross-dialectal comparison that includes our... <laughs> Man, you, like, rebelled for the Argentine Spanish. Yeah, you? I did. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was being down in Argentina when I first, uh, that I first realized this. So a lot of my friends, you know, I'd get on a bus to go back across the city and, like, 
I've lived there off and on, and I've spent a lot of time down there, but obviously, like, I'm not real, real comfortable in a big city like Buenos Aires being from, you know, the States. Mm -hmm. And so they would say things like, avisame cuando llegas, which is using the indicative, let me know when you get there, using the indicative in that second clause. Uh huh. And other friends, you know, they would leave and they would say, you know, te aviso cuando llego, so I'll let you know when I get there, again, using the indicative. And so it stuck out to me at first because I was like, I have very clearly in my mind that this is a subjunctive kind of context. And when yeah. I speak to other speakers, like um, for Spain, for example, they're all just like, no, that's not an option. Like, it doesn't make sense. I can't parse that. And so it's, it's very clearly a normative subjunctive context. But then mm -hmm. I started to pick up, okay, these are the kinds of uh, situations where I'm hearing it. And this is what it seems to mean, and then it just kind of evolved from there. So would you say, like, on a more, like, global level, when you're talking about Spanish variety, we don't know as much about it because it's more stigmatized, because it's not deemed as, quote-unquote, the standardized Spanish form that you should use. But, like, everybody can understand, man, he's like, cuando llegas, no? It's kind of interesting to take into account, like, at what point is something grammatically incorrect versus a dialectal preference, you know? So... Right. Do you think that that's kind of one of the things that your dissertation is addressing at the same time? Like kind of bringing to the forefront subliminally in a way that not everything that you know from a standardized grammar textbook is necessarily how Spanish is really used and how it evolves. I mean, or doesn't evolve, right? So, Right. Yeah, so I think that's a good point. And that's when people ask me, you know, like, what is the point of what, you know, as grad students, we often get the Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> What's the point of this? <laughs> of what you do, what is the utility of this? And one thing that I like to kind of emphasize when I talk to people is that, you know, what's in a grammar book, in English and Spanish and whatever language, what's in a grammar book and described as standard is very different from what actually happens in real life. And we're perfectly happy to accept that in the case of English. And we're like, oh, yeah, you know, we're just speaking informally. Or, oh, yeah, I'm from here, so I speak this way. And we don't seem to have any qualms about that. But I feel like often, especially Spanish students, have this idea that if it's not what's in the grammar book, it's wrong. Yeah. And, right. Or it doesn't have, like, logic and it doesn't have a, a conditioning behind it when we know that, you know, non-standard variation is still just as much a, a linguistic system as whatever the grammar chose as kind of, you know, that shining standard. Mm -hmm. So one thing that I try to do in my research is to, like, look at how systematic and how predictable this is, despite its being non-standard. And then also to kind of show, so with some of my uh, past research topics looking at Argentina, one thing that's kind of come to light is that there's sort of an Argentine standard, and then there's this pan-Spanish standard, and they yeah. don't jive. So things that are very normal in Argentina and, you know, don't nobody bats an eye at, you take that same feature to Spain and people can't even process it because it's just not part of the, the local variety. You know, kind of breaking down those lines of what is the norm, what is the standard, demonstrating that, you know, the standard is kind of just what historically got chosen by luck more than anything to be yeah. kind of the, uh, the model. And then showing, yeah, that those non-standard things are still subject to just as much rule governing as, you know, as something that got chosen for the grammars. Okay. As soon as you said Argentine Spanish, I wanted to ask you, what about the influence of Italian? Yeah. I know it's so difficult to like wrestle with that because it's kind of like you're taking into account like the the contact between the two languages because of such an influence by Italian uh, mm -hmm. immigration. So what do you how do you negotiate that? How do you kind of make those those lines not as blurred, if you will? Uh, yeah, what I try to do is I always err on the side of being very conservative and saying I'm not going to talk about contact unless there's no other reason that we can appeal to. That's a that's a so, very good strategy in my opinion. So in, in this particular case, I would say that 
yeah, there's tons of Italian influence in, in Argentina. Um, there's been some research to show that we have some influence, you know, obviously on the lexicon. Yeah. You know, you go to Argentina and you see the gestures, right? So <laughs> all these kinds of things that obviously have Italian background and, you know, the heritage of Argentina is very strongly Italian. But linguistically, I think a lot of times people say, you know, maybe the intonation is affected by Italian, maybe something about the grammar. But there hasn't been a whole lot to show real, real strong ties. Okay. Um, and so the other thing I would say on top of that then is that the fact that you get it in Brazilian Portuguese, the fact that I haven't looked at this in much detail, but you also get it in French and it looks to work mm. pretty similar. Um, that tells me it's probably a more of a pan-romance thing than an Italian influence thing. But again, you know, without the diachronic data, you don't want to rule one out and say that this is definitively what it is. Interesting, because Argentina seems to be one of the only Spanish varieties I've noticed that that does this, at least just to this extent. Okay. Um, and Italian is a language that does it a lot. So maybe there is, you know, a sense that it's a pan-romance thing, but strong Italian influence led to more. You know, it's kind of anybody's guess without without more research in that area, but it's, it's a possibility. Yeah, and the I guess the other thing, I'm going to let Bowden ask a question here in just a second. I'm not going to no, not going to hog. <laughs> uh, so tell me a little bit about how you collected data. Did you use, like, a combination of corpus research plus, like, ethnographic studies, field research? What did, uh, what did you do to collect this data? Um, so for the dissertation, there's sort of a three-pronged approach. It's it's unfortunately, as much as I love corpus linguistics, it's something that you just cannot get from a corpus because people talking about the future doesn't happen enough. And then yeah. if they do, they're, I think they're also too much in like, I'm being interviewed mode, you know? Yeah. So I don't think they would even produce it. Um, and it's also a very specific type of future eventuality that you get these, these sorts of things with. So they need to be immediate. They need to be certain. Um, habituals that continue in the future, stuff like that. So a corpus, you're not going to find very much. Uh, where you do find a ton is social media. Yeah. So Twitter searches are wonderful for this because you find things you think like, surely not, surely in this context no one will use this, and then you look on Twitter and you're like, oh look, you know, Josefina is tweeting and she's using this form. Uh, oh, so that you, you can, you have the kind of the qualitative data available, but um, for the dissertation, kind of the main data source for my argument is based on experimental questionnaire stuff. So okay. one is acceptability judgment, the other is forced choice. Uh, the forced choice was the original idea, thinking let's simplify things, let's make things that they're clearly going to love and clearly going to hate with the indicative. And then I talked to uh, somebody at the Linguistics Institute this past summer, um, Brian Dillon and, and John Sprouse, who are great, and they were telling me, what if they're aware they, of what you're asking them and they focus too much on the standard and so they just do what they're supposed to do yeah. and the subjunctive every time and you never have any variation to show in your dissertation. Right. So they said, backup plan, do acceptability judgments as well. Okay. The great thing is people actually did not do that and they chose the indicative just as much, maybe more than I thought they would. Um, wow. So the cool part is you have now these two tasks to look and see like, okay, when it's very clearly shown like what I have you doing, I have you choose between these two forms, you're making a mood distinction, versus this is just one piece of a sentence that I'm asking you to evaluate for acceptability, you can kind of start to get a feel for how aware are people of this variation. So do they balk at it when it's forced choice, but it flies under their radar when it's acceptability judgment? 
Um, so that's been kind of nice having the two and being able to compare. The the story that I'm trying to tell is, is nice because it's really clear from both sets of data where there is a specific type of future eventuality that people are totally fine using the indicative with. And there's variation from person to person. But what you don't find is, for example, somebody saying like, uh, when I graduate from college in five years, which is an uncertain thing that is, yeah. you know, distant, they're not going to accept it there and then not accept it for like in five minutes when we go to lunch, right? Yeah. So there's this kind of implicational hierarchy where even though there's variation, people like this kind of uh, future event for the indicative much, much more than the other. And they're really consistent. Wow. That sounds really interesting. It's been a fun dissertation so far. That's the best, right? When you have a fun dissertation. A lot of people kind of feel like a dissertation can be very overwhelming. It's kind of like the beast that you have to battle and you have to like get past the beast to walk through the door of the rest of your life to have a PhD. That's the metaphor I'm working I feel with like right you're now. I'm this like picture of like a dungeon or something. Yeah, you're in a dungeon, <laughs> but you literally chose the monster that you're going to battle to get a PhD. So sure, it's good. Sure. Like you kind of made friends with your monster, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I would say, at least for now, we're at peace. Um, <laughs> it's kind of a, it's a little bit of an abusive relationship sometimes, but it's okay, right? It's, <laughs> sometimes the dissertation loves you back, sometimes it doesn't necessarily love you back, but... Yeah, that's it's definitely okay. one of those things where, like, you pick it, but when you start, at least for me, when I started, I had a very different vision of what I was going to be writing, what it was going to look like. And I think we all have this tendency as grad students to want to just like revolutionize the field and change the world with one single document. Yes, and we think, absolutely. That, yes, that's think my that that's I'm, just <laughs> I'm single handedly going to change the way that we look at mood cross linguistically. And then Argentine Spanish is going to be this like shine beacon of how pragmatic distinctions right. be useful. And what you really find is that you do a much, much smaller version of that, but that, you know, things do definitely kind of take their own on shape as you go. So there's questions now that I'm trying to figure out um, for the dissertation that like a year ago, I didn't even know what questions to ask, That's which so is cool. kind of fun. So one last question. Um, I was just wondering in terms of like your methodology. Um, so what does the, did you, did you have like the, was there a qualitative part of the, of the study and what did that, what does that look like? Yeah. So one piece of, uh, of the actual, so it was a questionnaire divided into the, the two tasks for the quantitative part. Right. And at the end of that, um, I had an open-ended question that just said, was there anything about the language used in the questionnaire that you want to comment on or that stuck out to you, something like that? Oh, cool. And I've done that in the past just kind of to give people a chance to say, for example, like kind of to see if people figure out what the purpose of the study is. Again, to kind of see how aware are people of this particular phenomenon, because my sense was that people weren't really aware they were doing this. and. Even some of my friends, they would say, like, avisamek when llegas or something using the indicative, and I would be like, oh, you did it there, you know. And they knew what I was looking at, but they were like, wait, how should I have said it? And they weren't really clear on, like, I'm doing something that's non-standard, this, non this is the standard variant. And so that was one way, is just asking that kind of open-ended question. You get all kinds of responses, people saying things from... You know, there were cases where I wasn't really sure if I should use chego or chege because... You know, I could see myself in this context using one or the other. So kind of starting, of course, without having the linguistic vocabulary to, you know, to say it sure. the way I, in a paper, they're kind of saying, you know, there's, there's something contextual here. Um, there's cases where I might use one and it's maybe even a fine line between where I might use one and the other. So that's really valuable, that qualitative data. 
Um, and then other people just saying things like, oh, you know, the weirdest thing that stuck out was this one form that you used, but it has nothing to do with what I'm looking at. So just kind of giving me a cue that, like, they saw 16 stimuli of a non-standard phenomenon and had nothing to say about it, which tells me they aren't even picking up on the fact that it's, you know, a thing. Yeah, um, sure. And then on top of that, so to do the comparison with Argentine Spanish and then Brazilian Portuguese and Italian, so I just looked at um, Sao Paulo and then Rome, I had... A, Did you a, travel to Rome to collect data? Oh, man. <laughs> you should always do a dissertation that forces you to travel to somewhere exotic, like super that, awesome, like Rome. Bad advice, yeah. Um, but I, I have informants from all three of those varieties, and I basically just gave them a series of... I mean, it was kind of a mixed bag. Everything from totally constructed examples... Um, so you can really tweak the context and see like, okay, let's make this something really, really uncertain, really, really distant, and see how far you can get them to accept the, the non-standard form. And then also uh, a lot of like taking things from social media, contextualizing them and saying, okay, here's a real world thing. Would you have done it this way? Or would you choose a different form than what this native speaker chose? Yeah. So kind of a mix of those kinds of things. And then one thing that was really helpful, actually, is that some of my respondents would start to say, okay, here I wouldn't do this, but I would use this form in this other similar context. And then you can kind of move forward using one and, and check with your other informants to see kind of, is there consensus or are we really all over the board? Yeah. Um, so the qualitative part is really, really helpful to me to figure out how the phenomenon works in terms of what are the real contextual factors, because right. it's really hard sometimes to nail down and put in a, you know, an online questionnaire Sure. All of the little bits and pieces that could vary. So, uh, my question was: you kept every or your examples contained vos, right? And so mm -hmm. vos in Costa Rica, the the variety of Spanish that I learned, vos is present, but it's not. It's not the same as in Argentina. I feel like I feel like in Argentina, it's definitely more to the forefront. It's less usted, more vos. And for Costa Rica, I feel like it's more usted than it is vos. But uh, that makes me, I'm kind of in territory where I'm not super familiar with this aspect or this uh, this usage of vos. But do you think that the vos is playing some kind of role as far as when you choose your mood or you choose to elect to use the indicative? Or do you think that that plays any kind of morphosyntactic or any kind of role, I guess, pragmatic either? I would say no. So one thing about, so Costa Rica has, of course, um, they have a lot of voceo, so a lot of Central America has quite a bit of voz. Mm -hmm. uh, but voz is this cool thing um, kind of across Spanish because you find, of course, it's only in the Americas, right? But throughout the Americas, you see everything from countries where they have tú and then they have voz as like this informal pronoun that you use with some select, usually less formal than tú even, mm -hmm. group of people. Um, so maybe like, you know, tu is the form you would use with your parents or your friends and then like your really close friends, especially if they're also male or depending on your, 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 your social class, your level of education, there's all sorts of factors that go into that. And so a lot of countries will have a mix between tu, vos, and usted, kind of in, um, with vos at the bottom being the least formal. But Argentina is a little bit unique in the sense that, I guess not unique because Uruguay and Paraguay pretty much have the same system, but, um... Instead of having tu, vos, and usted, your only options are vos and usted. So there's one province at the north of Argentina called Santiago del Estero, mm -hmm. and all of the rest of the country, your only options are vos and usted. Um, and so for me as a young person with other people my age to use usted would be really socially marked. Mm -hmm. And if I were tu, they're like, okay, 
someone from some other Spanish-speaking country is talking to me. So it's yeah. very not <laughs> Argentine um, to not use voz. So that was just kind of a, a given that I would use the most. But yeah, I think in another country um, where you sort of have that tripartite uh, mm-hmm. pronoun, you might you might find that that could that could matter because it would maybe trigger like a really close level of solidarity or something about real informal. Uh, whereas in Argentina, it's not so marked because that's really your only informal option. Hey, I think that this was an awesome conversation about yeah. research. We're gonna take a quick break. And we're going to come back and we're going to learn a little bit more about Mark's life as a grad student. <laughs> Are you ready, Mark? Yeah? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> All right. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Okay, so it's time to kind of dive into who Mark is at the core of his person. And (laughs) the most important core of his person, I guess, at the moment is that he's a PhD candidate. So let's kind of dive into that. So this section, Mark, it's called Lessons Learned in a way. And I'm going to hand it off to Bowden and he's going to take the lead for a moment. So basically what we what we do is we ask if you were to if you were able to go back at any point in your graduate student career and tell former Mark something that was a very valuable we little lesson. Mark. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> something Yes, we little Mark. If you were able to go back and uh, and tell yourself something that you think would have been extremely valuable, something that you something that you learned later, um, that was a really, you know, a really valuable lesson, what would that be? I have a couple actually. Um, so the first one I would say is don't compare yourself to other grad students because that is something that I, I don't know where I got it, but I just had this competitive streak where I would look at what other grad students were taking and the things that they were publishing or presenting and I would think, oh, you know, I should be doing as much as them. And in some cases it was me as like a first year MA student trying to compare myself to like somebody in their mid thirties who was coming back and doing a PhD, right? And it's just not the same. Yeah. It's unhealthy and it's really toxic among grad students to do that, but also academia is not a one-size-fits-all and it's certainly not where everybody's going at the same pace or even has the same goals. So that was one thing to me because I got very needlessly stressed out about, oh, my CV has you know less presentations or has less of this or has less of that. And I think ultimately it kind of pans out in the end and everybody sort of becomes their own sort of researcher and that's you know a good thing that there's different styles and different approaches. And everybody, of course, has different goals. So some people are getting a PhD because it's something they've wanted to do. Some people are getting a PhD because they plan to continue in academia and are really focused on like a tenure track kind of, you know, stereotypical uh, path. And so I think learning not to compare myself and to be okay with the fact that like maybe this semester I didn't do as much on my CV, but this other semester I can do more. Mm-hmm. Kind of cutting yourself some slack that way and not not being so competitive is a really important lesson that like early on it could have saved me a lot of grief. And you touched on something that I really love hearing from other grad students because it takes a very specific type of person to go to grad school to get a PhD. So can you tell me a little bit about why you were motivated from the get-go to, I mean, going for your master's is one thing, going for your PhD is another, right? In my personal opinion, like those are distinct in a way. So can you tell me what motivated you to go to get your PhD? So for me, 
I think that's true for most people that there is like a distinction between, okay, you know, doing a master's is one thing, but making that leap and doing four, maybe five more years of PhD is a big step that you mm -hmm. kind of have to have a reason to want to do. Because if you're not doing academia, I don't know what getting a PhD in something like Hispanic linguistic gets you that an MA doesn't already. Yeah. Um, but for me, it was actually, I took a year off between undergrad and my MA, um, partially because I was in Buenos Aires when I should have been taking my GRE. And then... <laughs> Also because You're just having I, too much fun. <laughs> so I also wanted to kind of see like is grad school something I want to do? And just kind of step back and and think about it first. And so I went and I worked for my dad's um RV factory. So where I'm from is the RV capital of the world. Everybody builds RVs for a living. <laughs> okay. And so I went and I worked in this office, you know, I was making ten, twelve dollars an hour. And it didn't take long for me to be like, this is not what I want to do. Yeah. So it's kind of helpful to take a step back and then see like I really miss academia. I find myself like still thinking about researchy academic sort of questions. Okay. Um, and it, I, I really really missed it, and that to me was a sign that like that's what you should be doing. So I went back, I did my MA, and then I actually switched programs between MA and PhD because I'd been at IU for my bachelor's and my master's working with the same professor. And he kind of said, you know, you need to fly the nest. So I kind of had a little bit of a change of pace there too um, when I came to OSU to work with Scott Schwinter. But at both of those times, those were kind of moments for me to be like, yes, I still enjoy this. Yes, I'm still passionate. And basically I knew pretty early on that I wanted to stay in academia and do teaching and research. So. Wow. And again, that's something where some people take years off because they, you know, they have families or they work another job or something. And that's another reason why it's it's so bad to do the comparison because everybody's got kind of a different end goal, and it's not be yeah. tenure track, you know, R one institution for everybody. And so, did you do you um, in your program? Do you have the opportunity to teach as well? Like, what is um, what has that been yeah. like? Yeah, so I actually I taught for two years at um, at a Indiana University. So basically, as soon as you get there on campus, you have your you know beginning orientation in, in methods or whatever, and then you start teaching right off the bat. So mm -hmm. I taught um, both of those years, and then in the summers I would teach study abroad programs for. Oh wow! It was a really cool program. So it was through IU, but it was called the IU Honors Program in Foreign Languages, where it was really really motivated high school students anywhere from like 15 to 17 years old. Uh, who wanted to go study abroad before going to off to college. Okay. Um, and so it was a really cool experience because they were really motivated. They took this language pledge. It was all Spanish all the time, living with host families, taking classes in Spanish with me and a few other instructors. Um, so I did that one summer in Spain and then one summer in Chile. And then um, after those two years at IU, I went to OSU, like I said, and then I've been teaching ever since there. The first year I was on fellowship, um, and this last year I'm going to be on fellowship again. Mm. Um, but in the middle there, I've been teaching everything from basic language to advanced grammar, composition. Right now I'm teaching intro to Spanish linguistics. So kind of oh, a, cool. it's been it's been nice. I've been lucky to have a, a variety. So tell me, because it sounds like you're constantly juggling a bunch of things, right? Tell me, how do you specifically deal with the stress and the pressures of grad school. I'm not the person to ask about this probably because Oh, okay, I, I'll move on then. No, I'm, just <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. And I guess maybe I'm just laid back or I don't know. I also don't have a whole lot of other things going on outside of grad school. So I talk to some of my colleagues and they're like, Oh yeah, like I've got this job and I have a kid and I have, you know, this and that and the other and I think, well, I like 
go to the gym sometimes and watch Netflix. <laughs> from that, I don't do a whole lot outside of grad school. So maybe, I guess, maybe that makes me one-dimensional on one hand. But I think it also no. means, okay. means less stress, though, which is, is kind of nice. So, you know, for me, I enjoy academia enough that I don't get too burned out if that's most of what I do. Especially since, you know, teaching is very different from doing research, which is very different from you know, doing like volunteer stuff on my own. That's still kind of like CV building in terms of why I'm doing it maybe, but you know, it's different enough that you don't feel like you're just always doing the same grad student thing. So that, I guess that would be another advice I would give is like seek out those ways to make it have some variety. So you're not just always like reading articles, writing squibs and like wanting to kill yourself, you know? <laughs> oh my uh, God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I tell you. There's okay. the potential for it to feel like you like never do anything other than study, study, study. But if you can if you can find a way to make grad school be a little more dynamic than that, I think it's helpful. Very awesome. Okay. Awesome. So we're gonna uh, bring us to our hashtag. Oh my gosh, we're at our hashtag. Mark, okay, so we come to the close, right? So we asked this question. If you could assign a hashtag to your experience, <laughs> what would it be and why? So I thought about this. I tried to find one that would be funny, but also have a positive side. So hopefully I accomplished that. Um, <laughs> okay, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. But at, mine would be hashtag eternal student. The reason. <laughs> hashtag my life. <laughs> hashtag eternal student. That's great. I love it. The reason being, we all have these like crises where we, we go home to our hometowns, right? And people haven't seen us for 10 years. And they're like, oh, you're still in school? Right. Uh, right. Yeah still in school or people ask you like when are you going to graduate and then you see them next year and they ask you again when are you going to graduate and you're like wow I'm almost 30 when am I going to graduate but on the other hand I think the eternal student thing is a good thing because especially thinking about the job market I think we have this impression that we're supposed to know everything when we graduate and then from there it's like okay now I go and use it to get a job but like I've learned it all during grad school yeah and the more I've talked to you know much smarter people than me, much more advanced people in the field, they tell me, no, you'll probably learn as much in your first couple of years at that new job as you did in your entire grad school experience. So like it prepares you, but no one expects you to know it all when you leave. So this idea that like you're going to keep learning throughout your career is kind of fun learning. Wow. So yeah, it sounds cheesy, but I think it's a real thing. So no, absolutely. I think it is. I mean, yeah, that's, that's a really, that's a really good one. I I like that one a lot. That was very wholesome. I liked it. And we don't is. have a lot of wholesome hashtags. My <laughs> hashtag was hashtag what? Like W-U-T. Just because I'm constantly like, what is happening right now? Just, con- but okay. Wow, Mark. Okay, so it has been an absolute pleasure. I cannot wait to see you on the job market next year because we'll, <laughs> I can't wait. We're going to be on the job market together. Hey, so we wish you the best of luck from Gradlings. Uh, and you. yeah, we hope to stay in touch. Okay. Bowden, I think that that went really well. What it was think? awesome. That was a great that was interview. Great. I, had a, I had a really good time. He's so well-spoken about mm-hmm. his research and about everything. I want to I be that articulate. I think I'm going to work towards it. I'm just going to... I'm just going to... Hashtag be that articulate. Hashtag be that articulate. Hashtag eternal student. No? That was... A, the, the, that hashtag, was the hashtag was great. The hashtag was, was awesome. Mm-hmm. And I really... Yeah, I mean, especially the part about... His lessons learned in terms of graduate students not comparing themselves to each other and not having this behavior of fighting with each other, I think, is such yeah. a great thing. <laughs> I mean, we're all in it to win it. Why don't we just... I mean, come on. That's a very healthy mentality. I wish that uh, 
Well, yeah. but we're all in it together. I mean, every we're, program we're in it, can be like we're that, in right? it to win it. We're in it to win it, but we're also in it together. And so we should, mm-hmm. you know, we can all work together and be friends instead of comparing ourselves to each other and saying, "Oh well, oh I need to, I need to." This person presented at this conference, and I have to. Therefore, I have to present yeah. here. And this is we're know, all on our own so little flustered. academic journey. Yeah, we're on our own. We're on our own journey, and we should do what we feels right for us. And yeah. yeah, man, they do a good job at the Ohio State University. They do. They do. Very, very well done. Anyways, guys, that is our episode. I can't believe it. We're already like, we're already growing. We got a, we got a person from outside of the university. I think yeah. this is gonna be good, right? It's gonna be great. And we have uh, some people coming up for the rest of the season. We got some. We got one more local person and maybe one more person outside of Alabama. Uh, stay tuned. Follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook. You guys know where to go. Just look for Gradlings. We're also on iTunes now, right, Bowden? That's right. Okay, so you can listen to can us listen on, on iTunes, iTunes, SoundCloud. SoundCloud? SoundCloud. So I don't do any of this technology. iTunes, SoundCloud, or the GradlingsPodcast.com. Okay. Message the page if you want to, if you're into that. Or email. You can maybe email. It's the GradlingsPodcast at gmail.com. The GradlingsPodcast on Facebook. The GradlingsPodcast on Instagram. Okay, we get it. <laughs> Say it it's all the time. same. Ah, okay. Anyways, guys, <laughs> we'll see you next time, okay? See ya. kind of like the dissertation is forcing you to learn how to critically think on such a level that you've never are you still there mark maybe he just got tired of talking (laughs) (laughs) um